This morning we continue our series on the prophets. A couple of weeks ago we noted that sometimes they afflict the comfortable and sometimes comfort the afflicted. In this case, it is a word of comfort from the prophet Zephaniah. The reading is from chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. Imagine a young girl, third grade, fourth grade, something like that. Her parents have signed her up for piano lessons. Once a week, they cart her across town. They sit in the car and wait while she meets with her teacher. And they wonder, is this time well spent? Is this money well spent? But she persists, and eventually it's her first recital. They buy her a new dress. They tell her that even if she messes up, no one will laugh. And then comes the day of the recital. She waits for her name to be called. Some of you grew up going to piano lessons or other musical instruments and recitals. You, you can imagine her anxiety, her nervousness. But what if, what if her parents were consummate musicians, doctorates in the musical arts? Can you imagine the anxiety? Can she live up to their expectations? Throughout the First Testament, Israel is often portrayed as God's daughter, a people who could not quite live up to the expectations of God. They failed. And so the prophets would come along to challenge them, like, like Amos, for instance, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And because their failings, they were carted off into exile. It's called a theology of blessing and curse. If you do the right thing, you'll be blessed, but if you do the wrong thing, you'll be punished. Thankfully, that is not the only theology in the First Testament. It's one of the competing theologies. I love the way Marcus Borg puts it. He doesn't use the same terms. Instead, what he says is you should imagine three different what he calls macro stories in the First Testament, large defining narratives. The first one is the Exodus, then the exile, and then the priestly story. The Exodus, of course, is when the Israelites are taken slaves captive in Egypt, and it's the, the notion of bondage, the human condition in bondage. The exile, which is what's going on here in Zephaniah, is when they've been carted off to another land. They can't be in their own holy land, and so they experience despair. The third one, Borg says, he calls the priestly story. It's the story that Humanity sins, falls short of the glory of God, and, and needs to confess and be forgiven. But then Borg makes this observation. The first two, the exodus and the exile, they are primal. They are the defining narratives of the human condition. 
but for some reason Christianity has made the third one the story. Defined everything in terms of sin and forgiveness. What a shame. People in despair, exile, they don't need talk about their sin. They're in despair. And that's what's going on in Israel. And you could say that's what's going on at our little girl at the piano recital. She is in despair. Can she somehow live up to her parents' expectations? I have a good friend named Emily who grew up with parents who were consummate musicians. They both had doctorates in the musical arts. One played piano, the other was vocalist. I've heard them do Rachmaninoff and Bach and all kinds of pieces, Chopin, and they are incredibly gifted. Emily grew up taking violin lessons, and she's gifted, but not highly gifted. She'll never be as good as her parents. So one time I asked her, Emily, did you ever, did you ever feel like you just weren't good enough? And she said without any hesitation, oh no, my parents delight in me. The people of God, whether in Zephaniah's time or the time of Jesus or even now, have not always figured out that God delights in us. The word that's used here in Hebrew is hesed. It gets translated loving kindness, which kind of sounds Bible, but it's really, it's mercy, it's grace, it's forgiveness. It's this amazing love that God pours out. That's why the verse begins, sing aloud, O daughter. Rejoice, O daughter. So why don't we sing? I don't mean why don't some people in church bother to get out the hymnal or you who are watching at home, why you don't sing. I don't mean that. I mean, why don't our lives sing? Why don't we make music with our lives? I don't know if you'll remember this name, but Noah Adams is a journalist who for a long time was one of the hosts on National Public Radio's All Things Considered. He had a sabbatical, and he wrote a book called Piano Lessons. It wasn't a how-to. It was a memoir. He was 50-something years old, and he'd always wanted to learn to play the piano, and so he finally decided to do it as an adult, which really wasn't easy. But he, he had a teacher, and he went to workshops, and he tells this great story about being at one workshop, and the teacher, addressing all of these aspiring piano players, said something about unused pianos. He said, you know, the ones that are in the house with a doily on top and a picture of a serviceman. And then he said, piano playing is the most failed-at social skill in the United States. And he went on to estimate that there are 11 million unused pianos. I don't know how many of you can relate. Maybe it's piano. Maybe it's a guitar that's slid under the bed and has cobwebs, or it's a violin somewhere, a trumpet. But I think those unused instruments are kind of a metaphor, a parable, for a life that has not yet embraced Hesed. Not yet fully recognized the love of God. 
Here's one way I used to put it in the classroom at seminary. I would give this little quiz, not the kind where you had to get out a piece of paper and a pen, not the kind where it was going to be graded, just a kind of playful quiz. And I, I would say, okay, first question, how many of you think God loves you? Oh, my gosh, you don't have to be in seminary to figure that one out. Everybody knows. You just say yes, right? It's a no-brainer. Yeah, sure, of course. And then I said, but how many of you think God likes you? And you could see the hesitation. You could see it. They, oh, uh, likes? Likes? We may not have fully recognized that God's love for us is that all-encompassing. If we were to fully embrace the love that God has for us, it is hard to imagine what a difference it would make. The text tells us at least one clue. Two times in this passage, the word rejoice is used. The first time, it's addressed to the reader, to us, to Israel. Rejoice, O daughter. But the second time it says, and God will rejoice, only it's a different Hebrew word, and it could be translated, God will leap with joy over you. The contemporary musician Mark Hayes translated it, and the Father will dance with joy over you. I know. A lot of Christians don't believe in dancing. I used to be a Baptist. Tell me that. I know some good jokes about that. But while some Christians don't believe in dancing, apparently God does. You can picture Barishnikov if you want or Beyonce. God delights in us, dances with joy over us. But see, the thing is, in Christianity, they're kind of these two tugs it's almost like a tug of war in a way. And here's how they go. They, they go by fancy names theologically, but here's the tugs. I think you can relate. One says, yes, God loves you, but God is holy, the Holy One of Israel, and God is just and demands forgiveness and accountability. And you hear it. It starts with love and then has a but. And if the but doesn't cancel out the love, it at least mitigates it diminishes it. But the other tug says, yes, it's true. The Holy One of Israel makes demands of us personally, socially, and they're pretty lofty demands. But God's love, God's hesed, God's mercy and grace, they overshadow it. God's love wins out over shame, over failure, over sin. That is the good news of the gospel, that we are loved and liked by God. I love the story that Roberta Bondi tells. She was a seminary professor who grew up in a not-so-great home. Her parents always bickering. Her dad wouldn't even let her take music lessons. He said that she wouldn't stick with it and it wouldn't be money well spent. It's a painful reminder that while some of us celebrate great dads this day, not, not all. Well, when her parents divorced, one of the first things her mother did was buy her a flute and arrange lessons. What a wise mother. And Bondi said she loved it. I mean, just the gleam of the flute 
holding it, looking at it, gave her pleasure. But there was also these doubts. Would she, would she somehow become the daughter her dad said she was? But she persisted. She played it all through high school, sometimes guiltily, but, but always lovingly. And she said that when she played the flute, she could feel the Spirit of God playing through her. It was like, she said, it was like being in love, crazy drunk in love. The pleasure that the flute gave her, she said, was the very pleasure of God. We are the Lord's daughter. And we are forgiven. So let us offer our songs and our lives to God. And may it be that they are the very pleasure of God.